Hello, everyone, and welcome back to a new episode of the Joni Mitchell Podcast. I'm your host, Zachary Scott Johnson. Today's guest is Allie Chipkin. She's a wonderful singer-songwriter based out of Boulder, Colorado, and we discuss Joni Mitchell's 1998 record, Taming the Tiger, which is a very interesting record. Please check out www.alliechipkin.com. You can find the spelling of her name in the show notes. I'll actually put a link right to her website in the show notes as well. Some of you know that I have a YouTube project called The Song A Day Project, where I record a song a day every day for as long as I can keep doing that. It's uh, now run for a little over 2,000 consecutive days. Allie and I recorded a song a couple of months ago in Kansas City, Missouri. We were both there for a folk music conference, and we recorded a song together. I'm putting that up the same day as this uh, episode is being released, which is May 2nd of the year 2018. So if you go check out the Song A Day project on YouTube, you will find that song of both of us playing as well. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. It really does help. Uh, if you have any questions or concerns, please send an email to Joni Mitchell Podcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, Joni Mitchell Podcast at gmail.com. We're ready to start the show. Man, I was loving it. I'm so glad you asked me to do this because it was so great to just like. Like, this is how I first got into songwriting, actually. It was, like, listening to Joni records and, like, kind of dissecting them and, like, getting, like, spending a week just being like, okay, what is she doing here? Right. <laughs> and, like, how do I do that? So this is super fun for me because I've never done that, that with this record, so. Yeah. Um, Where does this record fall for you, like, as a Joni fan? Do you, like, do you remember getting this record at all? Did you buy it when it came out, or where, where did you first hear it? No, so when it came out... I, so I was actually born in 1991, so when it came okay. out, I was about seven, <laughs> and, uh, and to me, it meant nothing yet. I didn't, I didn't discover Joni until, you know, maybe I knew a case of you in high school, and college was, like, kind of the discovery of, like, all, all the songs that everybody knows, you know? Yeah. Um, and then... Yeah, and then, like I said, when I started writing music, I dug deeper into, like, some of the lesser-known records, but I still wouldn't call myself, like, totally, um, you know, fluent in, like, all of her work. I would say, like, I've heard maybe 80% of it, like, where I've done, like, careful listening once through, maybe, and then, like, sure. uh, the rest is, like... You know, there's like specific songs off specific records that really stand out to me, and I'm, you know, obviously really familiar with Blue and, uh, you know, a couple of the more like famous ones. But this record, really, like, yeah, I I had maybe heard like a few songs off of it, and never, basically anything like more modern Joni, like never, um, drew me in on its own. It always had to be someone being like, listen to this song, or like, sit down and listen to this record. Um, and that's how this record was for me. I was like, oh, it's like her older, kind of like, jazzier stuff that doesn't really have like, as much of a tonal center and doesn't like, resonate with me quite as much so I, I know kind of like skipped over it well I think I pitched yeah. this I think I pitched this to you as it's Joni's happy record which is really only half true yeah exactly and it's so funny because um as I was listening I took a lot of notes too like just to stress my style when I close listen to things but like there was one song that was like so happy and it just it stood out like it sort of summed to me I was like what is this? This is not Joni. And then I looked it up and she hadn't actually even written the song. So, oh, right. <laughs> so that was uh, the My Best to You. Right. Um, it's obviously an older, maybe a standard, or... It is. I'm not sure, but... It's a funny standard, because it's from the 40s, and I actually agree with you that that is kind of an interesting choice, because it, like, it's such an idealistic song, you know, and it's such a, like, not... She had really kind of firmly entrenched herself in the, I don't want to say bitter because that kind of has a negative connotation to it, but like she was kind of soured on the music industry big time. And right. like the last, the last three records before this were really like as much about her being angry at the record industry as it was about anything else. You know, she certainly had like political songs and, you know, environmental right. songs too, but you know, she kind of was upset about her her placement 
in the record industry. And so there is a little bit of that. I actually think the Taming the Tiger title song is is from that. It kind of goes back to that. But there's, you know, that song right. is so unusual because it's so like just happy but i think she was i think she was in a relationship with somebody when this record was being made and and i think it was at least at that point a very happy relationship it seems to me right yeah i mean a lot of the you know my best view that really felt like so out of place in this record for me but i felt like um but the songs that, she, that did come from her that were happier like i loved um reconnecting with the crazy cries of love that was like really um was just like really fun and light but not like too sugary and um it like came from a really genuine place it seemed like you know still that like deep well of journey emotion but like you know not like naive but just um yeah just really deeply felt and but yeah the um my best to you that was that definitely stood out to me. Like, I could probably do it about this on, on that record. <laughs> yeah. It's also an interesting segue to where she was going next, because right after this, she kind of did, she did an album basically of standards with an orchestra. I don't know if you've heard that record. It's Both Sides Now, it's called. So it's all right. standards, except for two of her songs. She redid Both Sides Now and A Case of You with the orchestra. But like the rest of the record okay. is just standards. Right, right. Totally. It's really, it definitely, like, strikes me as heading towards that direction. I've heard, you know, again, like a handful of songs off both sides now. I'm not, like, crazy about the title tracks, so that's always kept me a little distant from the whole record. But um, but I definitely felt in this record, like, just, like, the more lush orchestration I almost thought it sounded especially towards the beginning like theatrical you know and I was curious if she has had again I don't know too much like autobiographically or you know biographically about her life um but I I was curious if she had any sort of like theater um influences obviously like most of the standards end up you know coming from Gershwin and um Cole Porter and like theater you know composers anyway but um but, like, the Harlem in Havana and Man from Mars, like, I could totally picture Bernadette Peters singing those songs, <laughs> like, really, like, theatrical-sounding, and, like, I think the orchestration, like, definitely contributes to that as well, like, having wind instruments, and, you know, it's not, like, super typical for um, a popular folk songwriter kind of thing, so. Yeah. Um, that's the about the next record to come. Right. How did you feel about that kind of orchestration thing on this record? Yeah, you know, that I struggle with that sometimes because I really, like, I don't know. I oscillate between being like, wow, I, you know, like, I love a lush, full sound, but I, I think sometimes that can be overdone and, like, just take away from, like, the simplicity and the the built and beauty of like the lyrics and the um, you know simple chord progressions. But two things that I loved for the most part, um, I believe it's a clarinet or maybe it was an oboe. I'm not sure, but the I love the clarinet in um, Harlem and Havana, and I also love that coming back in. I think it was Crazy Cries of Love. It was really nice, like the train rolling by, and then it has like the clarinet fills and. Um, there are a couple other songs where it really fit in. Um, also a few songs where I was like, which one was that? It was um, maybe, I think it was Facelift. It had like kind of too crazy of clarinet runs going on. But for the most part, I loved that. I feel like the clarinet to me is like reminiscent of a voice. You know, it's so airy, especially a jazz clarinet yeah. that it like, it really has a vocal quality and I can kind of, hear and feel words yep. through it so um, I love that I love that she brings that in it's like it's just almost like another voice yep. um, but I also really loved her like super lush jazzy parallel harmonies on, on like full left lines um, I think in Harlem and Havana and then there was like one other song as well that maybe it was like crazy yeah I think it was Crazy Cries of Love too that just had those like really lush parallel harmonies so I loved that perfect um but overall i think like she probably could have cut back 
you know, some of the middle songs on like having so much orchestration, um, it just kind of like, you know, covered some of the words for me where I feel like I, I would have to go like read the lyrics to really catch what she's saying. And, and for me, that's the core of what she's doing anyway. So I really wanted that like more present. So the um, the instrumentation that you're talking to is it's Wayne Shorter playing. It's actually a saxophone, but I think he's playing a soprano saxophone. It's not. I don't. I think it just says saxophone okay. in the in the oh, cool. in the liner notes. But I think it's a. I've actually seen Wayne Shorter. I don't know if you know who he is. Do you know who Wayne Shorter is? I don't. No. He, he's a more uh, kind of like bebop jazz kind of guy. It's amazing. The people who are into him are right. unbelievably into him. You know what I mean? He's just really... Yeah, right. Yeah. And he's played with Joni for a long time. They have a long, long musical um, kind of partnership. But I love his contributions to this record. I love his contribution. I actually think outside of Joni, he... And actually, Brian Blade playing the drums too is really, really great on this record. But... Um, yeah. There, th- like those two are such a great compliment to Joni. I think she feels so much more comfortable with jazz players than she does with, yeah. you know. I think, I think she always did, but I know exactly what you're talking about with it sounding like, um, like the human voice, especially actually in the very beginning of Harlem in Havana. There's there's this moment mm-hmm. where it almost sounds like it's Joni going, you know, like doing an ah kind of thing. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's amazing. Exactly. That's what I first thought. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, yeah. so do you know um, about the, the Joni, the guitar that she's using in this period? No, I don't, actually. Because this, this is, I think, kind of what it comes down to for me. I feel like for anybody who listens to this podcast regularly, there are these things that I, I don't want to sound like a broken record to, ch- to change gears for a second. And then I'll bring it back. We're, okay. So you were born in 91. I'm, I'm older than you by almost 10 years, but you know, we came up in the age of like friends being a really big TV show or are you too young for that? Was that maybe not huge no, for you? I love friends. Okay. <laughs> Have you ever watched the DVDs with the commentaries on them? Yeah. Okay. Because there is this one producer of that show who every single episode that he does a commentary on says exactly the same thing. He says every single time, well, the best episodes of this show were always when it was just in the the six of them in one room together. And he must say that for like 50, 60 episodes throughout the, the entire like 10 year run. And it drives me absolutely bonkers. She had grown tired basically of having to retune because she does alternate tunings for just about every song that she does. And so right. somebody at Roland made her this guitar that that automatically did the tuning. So she would just like, it was a programmable guitar. So it, she just wow. had to push a button and then it would, you know, it would be whatever tuning she needed for this song. And so she kind of fell in love with this guitar, but it sounds like a synthesizer. It doesn't sound to me like a guitar. It sounds like a, like a very synthetic tone. Yeah. And it, well, I didn't even know she was playing guitar. I was actually trying to figure out what was going on there. Yeah. I was like, is it? Like, what, what is this? <laughs> it's like kind of like electro-pop sounding yeah. something. Yeah. yeah. And that's why, like, when you look at the liner notes and see that there's not really any, um, you, you see that there's no real synthesizer listed, that doesn't make sense to me because uh-huh. it sounds like the whole thing is synthesized to me. Um, right. And so it's it to me has always been like these songs are as good as anything she's written, but I just don't love the sound of that instrument. And it, it was always kind of disappointing to me. And it, it worked the opposite way for her because she had done a tour earlier the year that this record came out. So this came out in 98 and she had spent the first part of that year touring in a triple bill. It was her Bob Dylan and Van Morrison. And that I think was billed as like the last show she was going to do, or maybe maybe that was a couple of years earlier. And then mm-hmm. Roland gave her this guitar, and she was like, "Oh well, this changes everything. I'm not done performing now," and like loved it. But wow, that's yeah, so funny. So it's it's wow. interesting to think about that because I don't love the sound of the guitar, but she loved it so much that it inspired her to create more music, which is ultimately a good thing. So. You know, it's right. <laughs> yeah, I'd be so curious. You know, like what these songs would sound like. I wonder if you ever did them, like 
maybe live version or something without that guitar because I'd wonder, I, I really feel like it would bring a totally different flavor, Yep. you know, to the, yeah, just to the whole recording. So it'd be really cool to hear, um, if you're listening, Joni, uh, please, please give it a go. Give it a try. <laughs> I've suggested that on several episodes of when we were talking about like yeah. the 80s records because there are so many artists right. nowadays who like put out reinvented versions of like Suzanne Vegas put out four CDs of like just her and acoustic guitar playing all her old songs. And I keep thinking, right. you know, like we have that for Joni for the 60s and 70s stuff, but we don't have that for like 80s and beyond. And it's the production yeah. from that point kind of got in the way of these amazing songs and sometimes for the better sometimes for my opinion not for the better um and you know right. it is interesting that she is the sole producer on this record so she hypothetically got it the way she wanted it you know what i mean so right, we're right. hearing her how vision many, yeah how many um like, I guess just, like, percentage-wise or balance-wise, how many of her own records did she fully produce? And when did she, like, start getting that, do you know? Yeah, um, I think this, th to the best of my recollection without, like, actually looking it up, I she basically started co-producing the records, I think, in the early 80s. But she always had somebody else mm -hmm. with her. As far as I know, this is the only one that she did wow. by herself. I think cool. maybe shine maybe because this is another one too. everybody assumed when this came out that this was the last Joni record. Right. Right. Um, and then, and she did the two orchestral records, which to some people count and to some people, it, there wasn't new material on there. So, um, Oh yeah. Okay. So she did, she produced shine, which came out about 10 years later. That was the kind of surprise one that nobody thought, would we would ever get another okay. Joni record, and we did so. Um, right, right. Okay. But even cool. the two in between that, she co-produced with her at the time ex-husband Larry Klein, who's also her bassist. So mm, anyway, got it. Those orchestral records, cool. yeah. Well, let's go through the pieces. You don't have to. You don't have to go. You know, at length about these, especially if they're ones that you don't feel like you know as well as the others, but you know, just any thoughts that come to mind. We kind of talked about Harlem and Havana a little bit. Do you have any other thoughts on this particular song? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think it's pretty like deliberate and obvious, but um, it was so quick that I picked up on the, um, on the, I mean, obviously it's more attribute to Joni's work than to my perception, but so quick that I picked up on the, um, the circus and performance vibe and it again back to like musicals it really reminded me of like I don't know if you're familiar with Pippin um I come from like a musical theater background and it's like this you know kind of setting the stage like here we're at the show let's like welcome you to the start of the show you know it's really like um kind of meta theatrical um which I wasn't really expecting and and then also just all the I love all the cat language like that long and lanky slinky it's so snaky those words you know describing the band but um kind of also describing like the movement of a of a cat and yeah. um yeah that one it's a really cool song it's nothing that i'd like you know turn on the jam out to in my car necessarily but it's it's very interesting i like the and i love the clarinet in there yeah or sorry the <laughs> yeah, no, I'm yeah. I'm with you. It only yeah, it does sound like a it sounds like a, like an oboe or a clarinet. It definitely has that like woodwind sound to it. Like I said, I really think it's a soprano sax rather than a regular sax. But yeah, do right. you, do you have the CD? Like, do you have the booklet? Have you ever looked at the stuff inside it? So actually, I I did a little like online kind of combing through, um, and there were some particular like particularly interesting things actually not to do with Harlem and Havana but I'll talk about I'll talk about it later but um yeah I did a little like coming through on her website specific to these songs and um but I don't actually have like the physical CD with me here the, the reason I'm asking that is because what what she did and she's done this for other of her CDs but this one is really she, she did this a lot she put up paintings that she had done you know the cover is like a picture of her holding a cat the back cover Great. The back cover is a picture of some other paintings that she did and a cat underneath it. Under the CD is a pic yeah. the CD itself and the picture underneath the CD is a picture of one of her cats that she drew, a painting of one of them. 
On the flip side, so what I'm getting to is there's like probably 10 paintings and a bunch of them are of the cat or her holding a cat or the cat doing stuff. So she kind of has this, a little bit of the like crazy cat lady thing going with this one because it's, it's yeah, all right. about her cat in this one. Um, I'm sure you read too, um, this is a little tidbit that really fascinated me, but I'm finding it on the website, I'm sure you read, you know, you know a bit about the background on Man from Mars, Yeah. that story. Yep. Yeah, that was like so fascinating to me because I was like, I mean, of course, immediately we throw it into like a relationship context, but, um, and I was like, oh yeah, you know, Man from Mars, this time you went too far, like, oh, maybe you know, a lover roamed, or they they just took something too far, or, you know, which, like, has, I don't know, it definitely has resonance in, in my life and other people's lives, but I thought that would make sense. But then reading about it, it was that her her cat started peeing on the floor, and she got angry at it and sent it outside, and, it, and then it ran away. Right. <laughs> and that's, like... Just knowing that would like, bring so much context to the to the record, and it's so like it's so funny, you know. As a songwriter, like you don't really think to actually write about stuff like that. You don't think it has like resonance or deeper meaning, but obviously, like you can come up with some pretty like impactful material um, just from like a really concrete, everyday kind of story. So yeah, and you can make it vague enough that it will sound exactly like a love song. I mean, like you say, if you go through the lyrics, the entire song works as a love song. Entire thing. There's nothing about it that screams, this is about a cat who laughed. Yeah. And I I did know that story. I actually knew she had, that's, this is one of the few songs that she had actually performed before the record came out. So she had actually been talking about this. And I think it actually was on the soundtrack of a movie. Um, a couple, yeah, right. a couple years before the the record came out, so I was familiar with the song because there was even at the time, like the internet was still a relatively new thing, but whatever movie it was from, somebody else performs the song in the movie or as the soundtrack or whatever, but the demo of the original song was kind of floating around the internet. So Joni doing the song, and it's very similar to the version that's on Taming the Tiger, but it's not exactly the same. And uh, so I actually I knew that song before before the record came out, and it was it was one of those songs where I I love it. I mean, it's so like mournful and so sad, and I don't know, it, it it's such a sweet sad song. But then you think about it from another perspective, and it's I almost wish I didn't know the cat story actually. Yeah, I I mean, yeah, I'm I'm half and half. Like at times, I mean, because I was like that line about um i can't get through the day without at least one big boohoo i was like what is that like i mean props to you for like feeling brave enough and courageous enough to put boohoo in a song and say you know then follow it with the pain won't go away what am i gonna do like i would never you know i would i would immediately throw those lines away and um so you know obviously that's just like joni's bravery doing that she does it a lot but like also I think it kind of pays homage to the fact that it's like it, it's serious but it's playful at the same time it's not like it's not like this grave life-ending loss you know it's it, it is still your cat at the end of the day and it's woohoo but you're not like totally sulking and losing your everything and, and that I guess yeah um so yeah yeah what about Love Puts on a New Face? How did you feel about this song? Love Puts on a New Face. I love the fluttering of the, probably the, the uh, tenor sax again there at the beginning. And I I just really, I, I don't know, it was endearing for me um, the line about, in France they say every day, Love Puts on a New Face. Because I love the sentiment, but I also just love Joni's like, fascination you know, her, like, Francophile thing. She loves France. She's like, right. talking about Paris. And that. I just think it's really cute and sweet. And um, and I love that she dreams about that other culture and how, how other people see things and how other people might see love. You know, how love can be different in different cultures and in different contexts. Um, so that was kind of scary part of that, plus that fluttering uh, back, um, texture in the beginning. Yeah. This is the the thing that always struck me about this song is lyrically how the there's 
these are very wordy lines in this song and mm -hmm. the the way she sings it is very unique i mean this whole definitely this whole record she sings like a jazz singer on this record she does not sing like a pop singer okay. on this yeah, record for sure. but the way mm -hmm. she sings these lines like the way she kind of fits them in and kind of suits the phrase with these you know i think for other people basically it would have been some of these lines would have been really awkward. And I think that's maybe like the crux of her songwriting. And that is maybe why it's so hard to cover Joni Mitchell songs for a lot of other people is like, she right. she sounds so natural when she sings these lines that for most people would be incredibly clunky. And what a skill that is. Yeah. Right, yeah, so I really think that's such a skill. I know like, I know some songwriters who write some of the most like profound lyrics and just incredible you know, incredibly detailed lyrics full of imagery and they're beautiful, but just the way they sing them sounds funky and it doesn't like resonate with people. And then you read them on the page and you're like, yeah, that's, that's really amazing. But, um, and then I know other people who write really kind of simple, general songs and like, you know, you see it on the page, you'd be like, okay, all right, that's fine. And but right. something about the way they sing it, like speaks it on another level, like adds another layer of interpretation and, um, yeah, I think you're totally right about that. It's it's an interesting song. It was never one of my favorites on the record, but I like it. You know, it's got a kind of... Right. It's a very conversational song. It's like listening to... It's listening to a conversation. You're not really part of it. It's just yeah. you're overhearing it, and it's nice enough, but... Um, totally. And that's another, like, Joni thing that I love is, like, she said this, I said that, she said this, I said that... Um, and I don't know if it actually comes up in this song where she's like naming people who say things. I don't think so. A couple other songs on the record it does, but I'm, I'm always curious. I'm like, who's, who's Sophia? Who's Anna? I just want to know. Right. <laughs> it, like, I don't know. like a real specificity and, um, yeah, sweetness to, to the song. Yeah, I, I think I know what, what line you're talking about. There's a line in No Apologies, which is two songs after it, that says, Freddie said that uh -huh. Freddie said that Juan thinks I think he's the devil. And so it's not only naming what? two people, two other people in addition to herself, but it uses the word thinks a lot. I actually really like that line, though. There's something about it that, again, it's kind of like what you were just saying about um, the boo-hoo line, where I think right. as as two people, you and I, who, who write songs, there are certain things that we feel like, oh, I can't get away with this. This is too, um, right. I, I, I don't even know the right word, but like I would just never dare to, to do that. And I kind of love the fact that Joni at this point, I, I and it's a projection because I don't know what she was thinking, but from my perspective, it almost seems like she was just like, I've already proven what a great songwriter I am. I'm gonna be really direct for these songs right. and yeah. say exactly what's happening. <laughs> but Yeah, and it's so funny. It's like, do you have to earn that, you know? Or like, do you, or would people still have appreciated if this, you know, if that line was like one of the first things they heard by her? It's just, is that part of the greatness or is that like in spite of the quote-unquote greatness? Or, yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. Yeah. I always wonder that when I listen to Joni. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question because I don't think... I don't think I know. I guess my suspicion would be it's it is somewhat earned because I mean this record got really overall pretty good reviews. Um, <laughs> most most everything that I read, I actually read quite a lot of reviews from the time, and almost all of them were really positive. You know, there were a few that were kind of yeah, it's fine kind of thing, but I didn't read any negative reviews at all. Um, and yeah, she's somebody who had gotten quite a few negative reviews in her you know like there are people who were really put off by what she was doing when she would get more jazzy um mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and there was none of that with this one but um how about lead yeah. balloon this is one of the more interesting ones on the record i think yeah i coming back to like production kind of overshadowing the songwriting i felt like that on lead balloon i i mean i love the line um <laughs> i don't know if, if that was like a a common phrase that I just had never heard, but um, that that went over like a lead balloon. I thought that was really brilliant. And um, and again, they, I said this, you said that. You know, I said kiss my ass. <laughs> like that's a great opening to such a um, kind of like aggressive song. And I love like the I don't know if this is the same guitar, but that crunchy guitar that it, it sounded really like lead 
you know, metal sound to it, which was really nice. But yeah. um, overall, I thought the production was, like, kind of muddy and, like, messy, which may have been intentional, but I, I didn't really dig it. Um, I did love, like, the... I, I like, like, Punchy Joni. I like, you know, Tequila and his business suit and, like, yep. Angry Man an angry man but like angry woman bitch like I I love that um you know her paying homage to the other side of herself um and but overall I'm not like crazy about the song I didn't really I wouldn't ever like listen to it I didn't like enjoy it musically really but um but I appreciate having a song like that on a record like this this song sticks out because of that guitar tone to it and it just sounds like 90s you know it, it sounds right. of a certain time period and it's a song that to me again like if there were an acoustic version of it where it were just straightforward i actually think this song could totally work and even like you know with the little drums and bass on it, like a little jazz combo i think the song could really be great but there was this right. it was like it was trying to straddle the line between it had that like almost hard rocky kind of feel like, like right. where it was trying to be really alternative. yeah alternative and I think this was yeah this was after like Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill you know record right, right. It, you know and I'm not saying that this was a response to that or anything but it it had that sort of like almost trying to to feel more contemporary than it needs to you know I think the song doesn't necessarily yeah. There are songs, there are things about it I like. Most of the lines that you said are some of my favorites. And I also love the idea that, like, she can stick a line like him with the heart of a Bonaparte. She can put a word like Bonaparte in there, you know? And right. again, get away with it. You know, she's she's the kind of songwriter who, like, it's, well, and there are others too. You know, Dylan could have done that and Leonard Cohen could have done that. But that very intellectual, um, you know, approach to a song where. M- you know, how many of us in the audience know what that is? Well, like what that reference is to, uh, you know, she, but I think she likes that. I think she likes kind of yeah. being the smartest one. <laughs> yeah. I actually had to, speaking of that, I actually did have to look something up with this song because I, I went to like read the lyrics and make sure I was kind of getting everything. And I, I always had thought she said, you can't count down. Um, I forget what the following line is, but like you, you can't count down, you can't take it back, something like that. Uh-huh. Um, and I looked at that. I was like, oh, you know, yeah, counting. So you, in counting, you accumulate. You you can't really count down in a way. Like I don't know if yeah. I'm thinking of that. Quickly, but like, yeah, you can't take it away. You can't count down. And and then I realized that the lyric is can't cow cow, right? Which is you know, a bowing down in respect is like a Mandarin Chinese word that I had to look up because I was like, what is a cow Yeah. Um, so yeah, like you can't, you can't bow down, you can't show that like servitude. Um, but also you can't take back, um, you know, your reduction. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that, that was cool just to have to like, you know, look something up. I always feel like, again, as a songwriter, that it's like kind of a taboo. You don't want to like alienate people and have a word that they're not going to, that's not going to resonate with them. But like, she was really unafraid of, of putting in words like that, that um, people might not get right off the bat, but they'd still be intrigued enough to like go explore and figure out what they mean. Right. Well, and she certainly came up in the era where you know that was a part of music was you would get the vinyl record or the cd or the cassette or whatever and it had the lyrics in the booklet and people would do that and that's just not a thing anymore you know it really isn't a thing i think that's probably one of her frustrations um with with the industry but i'm sure she assumed people were reading along and like studying what she was doing you know and there was a part of her that wanted to probably have songs that were worthy of studying and have, you know, some, some highbrow until, I don't know. I'm, it's right. total projection, but that's just, yeah, I don't know where it sits, but, no, okay. um, Absolutely. Wh- yeah. What about no apologies? I'll, I'll say that this is one of my favorites on the record. I have no idea what the incident she's referring to is, you know, in the first yeah. verse anyway, the soldiers erred in judgment. They should have hired a hooker. No apologies to the outraged Japanese. I don't know what they, what it, she's talking about, but, um, 
I love the song. Like, I love the melody. Yeah, I love it too. And I really, I thought this was one of the more tasteful, like, um, or masterful even, like, um, song order choices, having no apologies right after the Let's Loom song, where she, she, you know, is clearly not going to apologize to this, you know, male figure who offended her in whatever way. I didn't really catch why, but in Let's Loom, she's, you know, throwing the drink on him, and then the next song is No Apologies, right? So you're like, oh, yeah, No Apologies, in that same vein. But then the song is all about things that actually do warrant apology. Right. <laughs> like, things that, you know, violence and greed and saying, like, No Apologies doesn't really work all the time. Like, it, there are times where you don't need an apology and let the loon, but then these instances here, um, like, that deserves an apology. I thought that order was pretty masterful. And um, let me see here. I I loved the song. I um, I loved how actually she said lawyers and and loan sharks are laying America to waste. But when she says lawyers, a lot of times it sounds like wires as yeah. well, just like in her pronunciation. I thought that was cool. There was the line to the snakes and snails and puppy tails are wagging in the womb. Beneath the trampled moon, I thought at first I was like, "What is that? What does that mean?" And um, and then I kind of pieced together masculinity, kind of being really active and wagging around in the female womb. That's also, you know, and and the female womb plus the moon, all this feminine energy is damaged. It's being trampled on by this more active, like masculine energy of like snails, puppy tails, like, going crazy, kind of. I, I love the song. Like, the other line that really was, like, layered for me, um, the first time I heard it, it wasn't so layered. The general offered no apologies. I was like, okay. Um, you know, this is kind of a, a story here. And then the last time she said it at the end, the general offered no apologies. Um, you know, I saw the war general offering no apologies, but I also, like, felt like there was a layer of Joni, like, referring to her own songwriting and to, like, generalization. Like, you know, essentially, when you make a blanket statement or you generalize, it doesn't honor the specifics. Like, there's less room for guilt and understanding, and you just, like, make this blanket statement, and it's general, and there are no apologies in that, no apologies necessary. Whereas, like, when you get to the specifics, like, you know, you're actually, um, you know, you're meeting the people who you're in war with or you're, you know, you're saying the names of the people who you're harming. Like, those specifics, I guess, like, bring up more, they bring up more connection, which, like, you know, brings up more guilt and apology and, um, I don't know, understanding. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I hadn't thought of that. That's a really good connection to the song before. I hadn't really thought of that before, but you're right. And again, that's something that as a producer, well, I think she always had a lot to do with the production and like sequencing. I think she always had like a, you know, she, she had opinions on that. And I think she always worked with people who would respect her opinions, I assume. But, um, I, I think that is, not an accident yeah it's it's not only a good shift in terms of like lead balloon is such a like crunchy aggressive you know i would say actually among the more aggressive songs she's ever done and then to follow it up Mm -hmm. with this kind of it's this very peaceful sounding song but at the same time lyrically it's not at all and it will it's it's very um it's very visual in that way you know it's very it's you can see everything unfold which she's also brilliant at you can see the characters that she's writing about which isn't always true of other songwriters i i feel like i can see it's like a movie you know she paints a story that you can see unfold you know it's yeah so i think if if this were in the age of and maybe it's since been released on vinyl i kind of doubt it but um, you know, this would have been probably the end of side one, you know, it, like the, wow. the last track of side one. And she probably still thought that way, you know, and then kind of start right. fresh with the title track. Speaking of, okay, yeah. Taming the Tiger, let's dive into that one. How did this one sit with you? This one was like very layered for me. I couldn't 
really wrap my head around like, I, I mean, it was beautifully complex, but I couldn't really like figure out, you know, where she stood, like where, what her point of view was in the song. And I think, I mean, it's brilliant for that. I think it was, uh, maybe if I sat with it for hours and hours and, you know, wrote about it and tried to dissect, I think there would be a couple different um, perspectives that she's infusing into the song. Um, but, yeah, I liked the song. I didn't, like, for me, I mean, I, I see how the Tame the Tiger theme, like, weaves through the whole record. Um, but for me as a song, I probably wouldn't be like, this is the title track, you know, just, like, sonically. I didn't, like, it didn't really, like, stick with me all that much. But I did, like, I liked the crescendos, like, in the beginning. That really brought me into, like, the cat-tiger world. Um, and, yeah, definitely picked up on what you were talking about, of, like, that sort of fed-upness with the record business. And um, even, like, the rented car. Like, she got here in a car that's not hers. Like, she she's driving this car that she doesn't own. You right. know, it's like owned by someone else. Uh, everything she does, yeah, she's driving, but she doesn't, it's not her car, you know? Yeah. The record doesn't keep driving. And I think for some context for this song, um, for anybody who, again, I, I feel like the only people who would listen to a Joni Mitchell podcast are like big Joni Mitchell fans. So, but maybe right. that's not true. But so some context for like anybody who doesn't know the the stuff kind of leading up to this, the record that she had done before this, which was four years previous, um, right. was a record called Turbulent Indigo that had done kind of surprisingly well. It had kind of taken her out of like she went through this. 80s period where she was really significantly overlooked and that it kind of extended into the early 90s and then she had this really brilliant record come out in 1994 called Turbulent Indigo it's one of my favorite records of hers and it kind of put her back on the map a little bit and she won you know a couple Grammys for it and it just got really good reviews and so I think that's what most people perceive this song is about is the reaction to that record and how it was kind of, which to me is kind of surprising because it always seems like she spent, I, I've, I'm so, I, I admire so much more than anything else about Joni. I admire the fact that like she held to her kind of artistic muse more than anything else. Like, you know, she could have just, she could have kept pumping out court and spark over and over again. And like, you know, just develop this, this brilliant, large following, you know, but she chose not to do that. And, and that takes a lot of courage and a lot of like, I don't know, just strength to do that. I admire that so much, but yeah, but I think the other side of that is, so she, I think knew that and then still was kind of angry at the fact that like she turned off half of half of her audience. You know, she just, there's a part of her that really wanted everyone to just love what she was doing and go, isn't this brilliant? Because she knew it was brilliant and some of us knew it was brilliant, but it just wasn't connecting to the mass, you know, public in the same way. And so when something like Turbulent Indigo hits, it's this I probably a weird feeling for her because, I mean, and this song is almost like she is angry that it hit. And at the same time, you go, well, wait, haven't you been kind of upset that you haven't gotten this acclaim and now you're getting it and you're, you know, complaining about it almost. It's this strange, strange, yeah. you don't know how to feel. Because I understand her perspective on it completely. But, you know, there are nice there are nice things that come with that, but what she's complaining about are, you know, the, the things, um, w well, it, it even says in here, so accolades and honors, one false move and you're a goner. When you're at the very top, what she's seeing is the possibility of being taken down immediately. And so that's almost what the song feels like it is to me is I don't trust the fact that people loved this record and they're just waiting to, you know, for the next one to come out so they can rip me again. Right, right. And, yeah, what's interesting, I mean, then I, just hearing you say that, like, brings out another layer for me where I'm like, oh, my gosh, there could even be another layer to this where it's, like, you know, accolades and honor, um, 
one, I forget the exact line, but, you know, one bad move and you're, you're torn apart, that sort of thing, like, that could be the tiger as well, it's like, the, the tiger is the critics, it's the audience, not like the wild inside of her, you know, it's like, people are gonna, yeah, they'll just pounce on you, it's like, the tiger that's sitting next to you purring, and it's your friend, one minute, can eat you up the next second, so there's so much to this song that I feel like I, yeah, it's just hard to to um, hold it all in yeah. one space, you know, because it's so like layered and contradictory, but um, but it makes perfect sense. Yeah, you know, when you zoom out, kind of. Well, and she's kind of dismissive of some other, you know, there are other lines in this. She says, I'm a, I'm a runaway from the record biz, from the hoods in the hood and the whiny white kids. Boring. Right. And so that's right. dismissive of like multiple genres of music. And, and, and I tend to agree with her in a lot of, you know, like that's not my favorite, like whiny white kids. We can probably even like figure out who in the 90s she was talking about. But, you know, right. it it that that isn't really my thing either but at the same time you know it's dismissing music and at in the same time like writing a song asking people not to dismiss her it, it's just kind of an interesting choice i guess but yeah. she's yeah, totally. she's never been afraid to do that like she's gone after people before and um yeah. you know so i don't know it's just it's a very kind of high concept opinion i i like the song though this is also the only song on the record with the exception of the like the tacked on bonus track at the end called tiger bones which is actually just an instrumental version of this same song um it's this is the one that it's just her on she's the only person playing on it so she does the guitar the keyboards and all the singing so this song does have some synthesized stuff on it but um So that might be why it's kind of so placed centrally and why she seems, you know, why it's the title track and why she seems kind of prouder of this one that she again puts up an instrumental version of the same song to close out the record. But um, yeah, what about the crazy cries of love? That was actually one of my favorite songs on this record. I, lo- I thought the clarinet was really, again, I keep saying clarinet, <laughs> but it's just that, that, like, air through the instrument. They, the saxophone was really, like, tasteful in this one and just added so much to me. Um, I really liked the, um, like, the pitter-patter of the no paper thin walls, like, the way she delivered that. I thought it was really nice in, in each of the choruses, and um, it's just so... Like I said, it's really sweet and um, like it's, it, to me, it's like a delicious song without being super packed with sugar. You know, it's like it's just really rich and fun. You know, it's not like I don't know, it's not cheesy to me, and I, I feel like it's, it could be hard to write a love song. It's not cheesy. Um, yeah. I yeah. I also love one of my favorite verses is the. Um, Man, it's just like so full of imagery and so like meaningful imagery, not just like, not just to paint a picture just so you can see it. It's like painting a picture that really like elevates the, the passion. Um, and it's the, the one about the two dripping raincoats hanging in the back booth of the, of the All Night Bar. And it's like um, ice cream is melting on a, on a piece of pie. And it's like, I mean, that to me is a, such a delicious plot in any way, but it's like, oh man. If yeah. that's so delicious, you know, and they're going to go outside in the rain without their jackets, not even trying to put on their jackets, they, you know, they're going to go outside to make out or do whatever and leave that piece of pie with the ice cream melting on it, like, wow, that must be some good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so visual and, like, so tactile, like, tasted, um, and I like the, that the train, like, covers their sounds, too, like, the train covers their outside sounds, but... Really, even if the train's not going by, nobody nobody hears what they hear. Nobody can hear like the cries of of love that they are experiencing. You know, it's just between them, which is I just love it. I thought this was a great song. Yeah, no, I love it too. Yeah, it's great. I I agree with everything you said. I actually don't really even have anything to add to that one. It's just yeah, it's a nice song. Um, what about stay? In, yeah. What about stay in touch? Stay in touch. Um, it's so funny one after the other like that was going from my favorite song on the record to um, the song that I just 
couldn't even hardly get through once. I really. <laughs> um, there were two songs like that. Yeah, the, this one and the the cover. I just like it didn't. This one didn't resonate with me. I I mean I liked um you know I'm gonna like a fool stay in touch. I don't feel it came after the um crazy cries of love because you know that's sort of put into context of like okay maybe these two lovers who like are experiencing this really impassioned evening together maybe they just met and maybe they're departing so I like that like storyline um but I just like I don't know I thought the the lyrics were kind of bland and um stay in touch itself like that line when it first landed hit me well because it was like you know stay stay in touch by writing or stay in touch communication-wise or, or stay, like, here with you, stay in physical touch. I thought that was really powerful. Um, but for actual words, I don't know. I, I actually didn't even... Maybe if I listened a few more times, I would feel more, you know, connected to it. Um, but... Because I, I feel like that happens sometimes with journey songs from me where I'm like, this is nothing. And then I listen a couple more times and I'm like, this is so much more than I knew, you know? Um, but yeah, nothing really, nothing else like landed with me in this song besides the first time I heard "Stay in Touch," um, and then after that, I was I was kind of bored of it, to be honest. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, there is. Um, so this is another thing that you know the the diehards will know and and might come as a surprise to other people. So. One of the yeah. other things that had happened, I feel like this happened right around the time of Turbulent Indigo coming out that she, okay, so years earlier, I mean like years and years earlier, she had given up um, a baby for adoption, which she famously wrote about, you know, Little Green from from Blue. And there are references to that, you know, in, yep. in other songs that she did. And around the time of Turbulent Indigo, she was reunited with the, you know, her daughter, Keyloran, who was by that point an adult. And so a lot of the reviews made mention of the fact that they thought that this might be a song about, it's another one of those Man From Mars things where it sounds like a romantic song, and it might be. Um, right. And if you just kind of look at the lyrics, it could go either way, uh-huh. but it might be about her daughter as well. The reason I always suspected it was a relationship song um, in addition to like the other songs that kind of surrounded it, that led us to believe that she was in like this, you know, happy relationship. Uh, There is this, again, if you look at the booklet, the way the booklet is structured is like most songs have, you know, there's like one or two songs, the lyrics on a page. And then opposite that is a painting that she's done. And this, the paintings that aren't of cats are from like very unique perspectives. And this particular one is just of somebody's hand on what I assume is her leg. It looks like a photograph that somebody okay. else would take, a, like looking down at their hand on somebody else's leg, if that makes any sense. So it looks like a man's hand, but you don't like you don't know because it's just a hand and you don't see anybody's face. But that kind of it seemed again because it was it looks to me like a man's hand um and it looks like it's like a suit or something um that he's wearing you can see like his arm his or her arm and so that just kind of led me to believe too that it was a romantic song but it's almost more interesting to me if it is about the daughter but i don't know we'll never know so what difference does it make to me the one line i feel like most of it with burning brightly, these fire to fuel, these kind of things, and, and grinning like a fool, like those to me feel like they have a romance element, but I, the one line, our roles aren't clear. Exactly. That actually, yep. That brings me into the mother daughter. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly um, the same thing for me. I That stuck out but, to me too. Yeah. That's really interesting. Huh. Cool. I had no idea. Yeah. I, like I said, I don't know much about like, you know, her biography, so I'd be curious to learn more and see how it all fits into, you know, into these records, too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. The the bridge to this song is interesting, too, because she keeps saying the phrase, no doubt. You know, she says, no doubt about it, no doubt that's essential, no doubt. That's always been a tricky one for me. So there's something about that repetition of the phrase, no doubt, that always seemed interesting. Right. I mean, it, having nothing to do with what we were just talking about, it, it struck me as kind of right. interesting that... Um, 
it's repeated yeah. like that. But I don't know. It is an interesting song. I uh, I wouldn't say it's one of my favorites on the record, but it's not one of my. It's it's not one that I dislike either. It's another one. I can't remember which song we were just talking about how conversational it sounded. I think maybe um, the uh, Love Puts on a New Face, maybe we were saying that about, where the thing that strikes me again is like the way she sings it is in a way that like nobody else could sing this song and have it work even remotely. You know, it just wouldn't work. And she's able to, you know, I don't know. It just kind of flows out of her in a way that's interesting. All right, so we really only have one left because we kind of talked about My Best to You already, and I don't know that we need to really discuss Tiger Bones because it's just instrumental of the same song. I will say I actually kind of like My Best to You. I I kind of don't like the synth keyboard thing, but I actually really like the song itself. Um, I agree that it's kind of odd placement on this particular record. Um, It would have worked... It would have worked perfectly on the Both Sides Now record. I mean, it would have, that Both Sides Now is a concept record, and it would have worked perfectly because Both Sides Now, what she was doing was she was painting the story of a love affair from like beginning to end. So the songs in the beginning are like the idealistic, like falling in love songs. The songs in the middle are, you know, like starting to be in a relationship and things are starting to, you know, kind of normalize, but also maybe not be so idealistic and, and perfect. And then the last few songs are the it dissolving. And so like this song would have worked perfectly in some, some capacity on uh, that record. But right. Um, I thought, yeah. Like, just to like, touch on that too, I definitely like, I'm sure if I heard this in the musical or anybody else doing it really, or just outside of the context of this record, I, I would probably like it too. But it, to me, like in the context, it sounded so sexy and like um, Snow White, like Disney princessy <laughs> kind of, and like way too, way too happy. Like none of the complexity that I usually get from Joni Clerk. So I just thought it was, but then again, like who's Joni going to cover that, yeah. you know, that really has the complexity of her <laughs> Like maybe Bob Dylan or, you know, there's are a few, but like, you know, I don't know. So, yeah, yeah it's just an interesting, interesting uh, choice, but. Yeah. So the last one we have is another one of the ones that I think is maybe among the more interesting ones because of the conversational kind of very direct approach to it is it's called simply facelift. I, this is another one. This is the other song from that era that she had been performing once or twice at least uh, before the record came out. So at that point she was calling it love. Um, let's see, love happiness is the best facelift. I think she was calling the song. Um, and then it just, got okay. it just got shortened to facelift, but um, yeah, where she kind of okay. goes after her mom, which is <laughs> kind of funny. It, She's she's very yeah. direct at a you know, whatever. What, how did you yeah. feel about this song? One of my favorites. I again, I felt like that that uh, refrain line was kind of one of those journey lines. That's like, you know, would I would I ever write that? Would I ever feel right. good about writing that? I I don't, I don't think so. I think I would like definitely that would be like a throwaway thing for me. I'd be like, oh, it's cheesy, but. She does again her delivery like it. It does kind of work, but it's it doesn't like hit me the way that so many of the lines do. Um, which actually like I don't know. I kind of like that. I loved you know just like looking at whole records like this of like Joni Mitchell who who you know is is absolutely brilliant and just being like okay you know every song doesn't have to be <laughs> like every song can't possibly you know every line hit straight to the heart and be, you know, I, I think it's it's a balance. So that was cool. To, and that was, like, one of these songs I felt like it, it kind of, like, balanced out. Um, I like the idea that happiness is, is a fit, you know, great face list. But um, I also really liked uh, the Christmas stuff in here. I love, that's another thing I, I love about uh, Joni things that get, you know, gets sprinkled in a lot of her music is not only the France stuff, but, like, this fascination with, Christmas, kind of, which yeah. I think is very sweet. Um, so, yeah, I love like the ending stanza of um, you know, like pushing that up to the window to see the Christmas lights, and um, it's just like the sparkle. And again, I think she mentioned Paris in there too, like the sparkle yep. on the river. It reminded yep. me of Paris, um, and so I really liked that imagery. 
Um, but yeah, it was like a little uncomfortable at, at times, like thinking about like, oh my gosh, she's like so exposing of, of her mom and her relationship. You know, sometimes I think like when I read um, or I listen to lyrics, like last time I saw Richard or this and that, I'm like, oh, she could have changed the name of that person or whatever, but this is like, no, this is my mom. Right. <laughs> and, she's, and she's saying, Joni this, Joni that, you know, um, and I'm saying, mama, no. And like, it's very, very direct and exposing and um, kind of made me uncomfortable, like thinking about, I don't know, I, I think about that a lot, like the relationship between your art and how it affects your life and like how much you're willing to expose and share. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was really interesting. Um, I'm trying to think what else here, like, um, yeah, really I think my favorite thing about this song was the, the imagery at the end, with the pushing the bed up to the window. And I also think, I, I love, I don't know if this is intentional, but like it kind of gave me, um, this larger metaphor of like, we have to push the bed up to the window and look outside for the happiness. Like it's not coming from inside this home. We gotta we gotta look outside for the lights and the pretty and the and the everything perfect because it doesn't totally feel good in right. here, you know. Right. Um that I loved. But but yeah, not not like crazy about the song overall, but um but obviously there's some of some like classic Joni um devices and imagery in there that that does resonate so yeah it's an interesting record isn't it i actually really enjoyed listening to this record kind of more than i thought i would i don't mean that in a weird way i just like it oh yeah it i hadn't listened to it in a while and it's not that i thought it was bad i i just thought of it kind of differently and when you analyze the songs on it it really is an interesting record i don't know that it's necessarily top tier Joni but it's you know for a lot of people this would be like a really definitive album for her it's just another record <laughs> which is you know right. <laughs> which is kind of amazing but uh for you right. know for for me I would love to put out a record that was as you know interesting as this one all the way throughout it so so speaking of top tier uh, the the things i had warned you about in advance i don't know did you come up with a top five Joni list by chance you know in my attempt to let me see how many i have on here in my list one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve thirteen fourteen fifteen sixteen i came up with so i'll i'll choose them now <laughs> oh are, did you do songs i, I did songs okay yeah, yeah that's fine song, yeah i think it's I think it's a just kind of product of my generation. I, I tend to, I try to listen to records more through, but it's so trained to. Yeah, you don't think songs. of it as a record necessarily? Yeah, I, I mean, I really try to because I find so much value in that, but I, I tend to just, I don't know. I tend to be like, hey, I have time for one song, so what's it going to be, you know, and then skip to the next thing, and then there's so many artists out there that I want to learn about. There's like a sampling of everything, which, you know, has its merits and its drawbacks, but, um, but yeah, so in terms of songs, let me see if I can make some decisions here. So you said five, right? Yeah, I mean, if you've got more than five, that's fine. You can, oh. I mean, you can just read the list if you want to, if it's... All right, I'll skip a few. I, I think a few were just I was just like, maybe I could consider that, but um, definitely, I think my favorite Joni song, probably just because of the guitar, I love this, I love um, All I Want, um, I love Cactus Tree, I oh, love, yeah. yeah, that like lyrically really gets me. Cactus um, Tree is way up there for me. All I Want, by the way, yeah. I think All I Want is Dulcimer, I think. Is what? Is Dulcimer rather than guitar, I think. Oh really? Yeah, okay, she played cool. she played dulcimer a lot on blue. It's like half the record cool. is dulcimer. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Cool. That's awesome to know. Um, so yeah, all I want cactus tree. Um, I could not. I I love a case of you. I could not do it. Yeah. But, um Then let's see. I love for free. I love that. And then um, I also really like Amelia. Yeah. And I really. I like Twisted, um, just for like the fun, different jazzy, you know, it's like the, it's like a song that I'm like, oh, this is, 
not like quintessential Joni. And there are many songs that I feel are not quintessential Joni that I'm like, oh man, it's not quintessential Joni. And that I'm like, oh, this isn't quintessential Joni, but it's like so got some real like Joni personality and fun and cute and funny and um, so I like that. I I love Urge for Going yep. and um, and I do really like. I just love the the delicacy of her voice in Little Green. I think that yeah. delivery is so beautiful. Yeah. That's a solid so, list. Thank you. Yeah, that's I, a good list. There are more, but I those if I had to distill it, those yeah. would be definitely on top. Yeah. No, those are those are really good one. Um, it's it's interesting too because I didn't put it together, and, and I wouldn't have had you not said it. But Twisted is also a cover, and it's that same sort of thing where oh. it ends that record and it's like a left field choice in a totally different way than my best to you but like when she right. when she does cover something it's an old standard um and that uh, one that one was a fun one where like cheech and chong are on that song that is insane to me yeah. that cheech and chong are on right. that song right compared to you know, my best to you, which is like you said, so like, you know, kind of sugary and saccharine um, sounding, but that's what she goes to, you know, that's what, if she's going to do somebody else's song, it's not going to be a contemporary. It's going to be something old right. and because it kind of adds something unique yeah, to the record, right. but yeah. Mm -hmm, Interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, and then cool. yeah. la last thing, um, what are you listening to right now? Besides, Taming the Tiger. What are you listening to that you would give a recommendation to? So, like a non Joni. Well, let's see. I just, I actually just saw Jeffrey Martin um, at the Walnut Room in Denver, and he blew me away. I, he was awesome. Um, I've had his record on in my car. I forget the name of the recent one, but um, yeah, I've been listening to to his record. I've been listening to, I actually just discovered a really cool song yesterday. Let me see if I can pull up the name of it. It's instrumental. And while I do that, I'll mention, oh, I'm also listening, I've been listening to the Punch Brothers um, quite often. And hold on, let me see if I can pull up the name of this song. It was just such a beautiful guitar um, piece that I kind of had on repeat since yesterday. So if I can find it here I will um, but besides that honestly for the last like I want to say the last like two years we're to Boulder Colorado I've been listening pretty religiously to Gregory Allen Isakoff I just can't sure. get off his stuff he's so um, another song I know it's just a ton of like layers but so much simplicity and I feel like never really over orchestrated like I thought, I mean, I guess the Colorado Symphony uh, record had more orchestration, but like in his own records, I'm just like, yes, this is so perfect. That and the Wood Brothers, um, I feel like are, they're just so tasteful in terms of like um, arrangement. And the song that I found is called We Did It All Wrong by Kevin Morby, M-O-R-B-Y. Oh. It's the, the instrumental song I've been tracking uh over and over for the, for the last like 24 hours so. interesting interesting <laughs> yeah, well those are good I, suggestions too yeah i really like i mean i i tend to like default to stuff that's um folky and relaxing but like lyrically rich and that's that's where like the gregory stuff comes in um but i also when i start to tire a bit of that style i get right into still folky but like kind of boozy so with, with other stuff but um but yeah that's kind of the recent 